Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 77. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com. It's acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. Fooleman, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm doing well. I did not get to see the game last night. I was out for my beloved's birthday, but my understanding is we defeated the Boston Bruins last night. We did. And, um, you know, you can quibble with how it was done. We didn't thoroughly outplay them at 5 on 5 but who cares right it's i mean the bruins and the Habs are a couple teams where it's like i don't really care how we win as much i just want to win yeah right sometimes Um, you just gotta take it (laughs) yeah and i'm not like we we know the leafs are a good team i've been we've been encouraged by their results it's nice to see them get two points Mm -hmm. right against another really really strong team uh in boston and i mean especially when they're shorthanded missing you know arguably their best player in john Tavares, and also uh, they're I feel like people don't recognize that John Tavares might still be the least best player enough. No, and, and there's like this desire to crown Matthews, which I totally get. Matthews is coming up on being the best goal scorer in the world if he isn't already. But Tavares is a more complete player. And that may, makes a difference. Like, I think that you can still quite reasonably argue that Tavares is the best player on the, the Leafs. He was last year, I think, and I think that that's Yeah, I, I think he was clear. last year, and it wasn't that close. And this year, you mm-hmm. could argue, I mean, Matthews had, a, as usual, had a torrid start. Mm-hmm. Um, his line has done really well, and Tavares has struggled relative to his kind of lofty standards. So I think like these first eight games, really, it was the first time you could kind of really credibly make this argument. But the mm-hmm. weirder thing to me is so many people are like, you know, and we'll get into this later, we'll talk about this, but I was listening to this... Um, TSN overdrive bit, and one of them suggested putting Matthews and Marner together and saying, you know, put the two Leafs' two best players together and say, wait, what? <laughs> like, like Hang John on Tavares, a second. John Tavares has a broken finger. He didn't die. Yeah, I don't... It... And like, maybe maybe he just meant, you know, with Tavares injured. These are the Leafs' two best players, which I would agree with. Yeah. But it didn't seem phrased that way, and like, Mitch Marner is an amazing player. He is not better than John Tavares right now. No, I think that that's clear. And I do think that there is, frankly, some taking for granted going on just because John Tavares played most of his game, most of his career, in Long Island, where a lot of Leaf pundits did not see him. And so they don't have the same track record of watching him bloom the way that they do with Mitch Marner. But Tavares is, like, an extremely good all-situation center. Um, Before he came to the Leafs, I think it was maybe fairer to say his defense was a bit iffy. But he's our best two-way center at the moment, I think. I, I mean, it's a it's awesome. a low bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, him versus nobody. So, yeah, anyway, it, it would be kind of nice if people credit him more. I, I do like that he's the captain, you know, notwithstanding all the, the nonsense that's gone on around that. You know, I feel like he's got the right personality type. And also, he just seems... By the right personality like, type, you mean no evidence of a personality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you want to put it that way, like, he is very good at exuding, like, the hockey-playing robot demeanor. Yeah. But, you know, just, like, relentless professionalism and yeah. well, never I mean, strikes through the plot. He, he's almost like a, a baby Crosby. I think James Murdoch also made this comparison. He's like a baby Crosby in that, like, he's kind of a do-everything mm-hmm. center, not to the same level as Crosby, who I think is, you know, maybe one of the five best players who ever lived. Um, but, like, it, he has the same sort of, uh, I guess personality where it, it feels like all Tavares does is go to hockey practice come home and then stare at the wall until it's time for <laughs> hockey practice again did you ever see seven days in hell 
that no. uh oh well it's this extremely funny mockumentary about a tennis final but there was one scene where Kit Harrington, who's one of the competitors, just goes to his hotel room and stares dead-eyed at the wall <laughs> from like three inches away. And that is indeed kind of what I think of with the virus going on. Yeah, maybe he eats some kale. You yeah. Know. Well, now now he's a newborn, so he has to help out with that. But uh, yeah, that's true. previous to this, I, I, I honestly think he might have just sat there, <laughs> thought about hockey. Just get those nutrients. Exactly. Um, but anyways, uh, back to back to the game. So th- this game was, was interesting. Um Going into this game, we were expecting to see the Leafs' top line of Matthews, Janssen, Neander stay the same, and then Mitch Marner to move, or sorry, Alexander Kerfoot to move up, uh, along with Ilya Mikheyev, to um, align with Mitch Marner. Right, that would be mm-hmm. kind of the Leafs' de facto second line. Jason Spezza would take over with um, Moore and Kapanen on the third line, and then the fourth line would essentially remain unchanged. Shore, Gauthier, Timoshov. Mm-hmm. What we actually saw was. Um, something we don't often see out of Babcock, which is this kind of huge line blender throughout the game. Um, where And it was revealed after the fact that there was kind of a strategy to this, where he would play uh, Matthews, Marner, Janssen against Patrice Bergeron's line in all non-offensive zone matchups. Matthews, Janssen, Nylander, whenever he had the chance to get them out in the offensive zone. And then against that Bergeron line, Gauthier's line, Gauthier Shore, Timoshov, for defensive zone draws against Bergeron. So it was, um, you know, I'm not going to say that has, like, not been done in the NHL. It's not, you know, we're not talking rocket science here. This is a very simple if-then kind of clause in line matching, but it's not something we, we typically see out of Babcock, who tends to be kind of more consistent to say, okay, you, you know, line X, you get this matchup X regard, almost regardless of the zone. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to uh, to say because there are so few shifts almost in each bin in one given game. Yes. That if, you know, this weren't pointed out to us, it might be easy to just chalk it up to randomness and say he's not really that matching. Yeah, but, and there's also very few lines as centralizing to your strategy as the Bergeron line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, there are teams that are more dependent on one line, but... The gap between their first line and everything else, especially with David Krejci out, is kind of incredible. So, it certainly merits kind of a complex strategy where you're really just aiming at trying to neutralize them as best they can. From the numbers, it looks to me like it worked pretty well. I mean, what do yeah, you think? Yeah, I mean, it It seemed to do all right. It was, it was kind of hard to judge because um, Janssen got hurt halfway through the game. Right, and then he came back for a little bit, and then he was gone. So then Trevor Moore played um, a lot of the the third in Janssen's spot, essentially. And then the third period was basically just um, Matthews, Kerfoot, Gauthier, Matthews. And then they, Matthews was essentially getting double-shifted, mm-hmm. more or less, right? Um, Spezza almost played nothing. So it was—I think the rule kind of got adjusted slightly in the third. I haven't looked at the numbers to make sure. But yeah, I think— on the whole, it, it looked solid, right? And I think Marner and Matthews, you know, in their um, post-game kind of media availability. So, that, you know, I think we did a pretty good job against the Bergeron line defensively, and I think that, that's accurate, right? Um, yeah. I mean, reading between... It's hard not to read between the lines and think that they want to play with one another more consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, maybe that'll happen now. But yeah, if they do want to do that, this was a good first effort in making sure that happens again, because... 
I think they were solid. And um, by comparison, I think Nylander had a, a particularly poor game. Um, mm. And I don't think there was any... I'm not sure if there's any particular reason for it, aside from the fact that poor games happen from time to time. But, um, yeah, the, the Matthews-Marner-Jonson trio did well. And the with Nylander on the ice, that line was not as good as we're used to seeing. Yeah, I, I mean... I, I think you and I are both believers in Nylander, but you know, his play comes and goes like anything else. And so probably just have to hope for better results at home going forward. Yeah, it is I mean, an interesting choice, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, a very, it's a very interesting choice, right? Because, again, it's not something we typically see out of Babcock, where, I mean, he often will use certain lines in defensive or offensive zone starts, and we can talk about that a bit more later. But it's typically not um, as... It's not typically not both zone and competition dependent to this degree mm-hmm. right um where he has like a specific rule against that particular line as far as i can tell generally the, the pattern that we've seen is that the the fourth line has taken a lot of defensive zone draws in order to free up the matthews line for relatively more offensive zone draws um but that has been you know somewhat independent of, of competition and, and the fourth line hasn't usually had to um go up against top lines of the opposition Right, and I mean, that's kind of a typical thing. We would we wouldn't expect, we would hope that, that doesn't happen because as much as we are, we've been impressed with Freddie Gauthier's growth. Um, I still don't feel incredibly comfortable with him against you know high end lines. Then again, we did see this a little bit against Tampa, where he would just put them on in the defensive zone, regardless of who was out there. And I think once against Tampa, it bit us. They got they they scored. Yeah, it. I mean, it's inherently kind of unnerving. I do think of something that uh, Justin Bourne has written where he says, a lot of defense is just about trying 100% all of the time. And I know that that sounds kind of old school, but he talks about, like, sometimes defensive zone coverage, especially when, you know, there's not a lot of straightaway speed involved, as there is not when you're already in the D zone, is just about your willingness to kind of keep your feet moving and keep trying to cover your area of the ice and all that sort of thing. And so if you have guys on the fourth line who are doing that, it might be possible that they're going to be more effective than it intuitively seems. Because I won't lie, when you just say it as one sentence, hey, we're going to match up Freddie Goche against Patrice Bergeron sometimes, that gives me nightmares. You know, even as much as I'm impressed with Goche, like my vi- vision of him is him getting destroyed. And so... You know, it doesn't look like that happened to the full extent. The shots were kind of gross, but that's also what you would expect in a limited situation with a lot of D-zone starts one way. Yeah, agreed. So. And, and actually, I'm, I'm looking this up now. The fourth line has actually similar forward competition to the Matthews line. It, it, now, the that is line, interesting. The fourth line has more has like higher forward competition than I thought they did. Um. Which is kind of stunning and also speaks to how kind of sheltered-ish the Matthews line is. It's not like uber-sheltered in terms of uh, defensive, uh, the defensive pairings it goes up against. It typically goes against, goes up against top defensive pairings, but it's not going up against top forward lines, mm-hmm. right? And I think part of that is they're, they're, trying to free, they're trying to get Gauthier to handle some of those in the defensive zone because Babcock has kind of rightly identified that um, Matthews and Nylander are not great there. Right. Um, and so far it seems to be working. Yeah, I, I mean, 
man, <laughs> it, it's such an intuitively kind of a weird concept to me. But if you really are convinced that you can effectively use your fourth line in that way. And to be honest, I don't have any excuse for being that surprised by it. Because now that I think of it, I remember during the tank year, um, Babcock used Byron phrase. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, sort of in, in pretty aggressive situations, given his skill level. Like, he started just a tons of very difficult situations. It was hard to infer too much from that, because, you know, the team was tanking. Right, so Babcock was going really into matter. battle with, like, a butter knife and, you know, a lemon. Yeah, it was sort of like, you know, even if I start my second line center against him, who is it? I don't even remember. So, yeah, uh, it is interesting to see the fourth line maybe get more integrated. That is also maybe a product of a fourth line center that he appears to trust more now in a way that he really didn't before. And I think that that was connected with our habit of acquiring fourth line centers at the trade deadline, um, which we actually arguably did three years in a row uh if you count brian boyle thomas Buchanan, and then nick patan uh, nick patan obviously did not seal the job very authoritatively <laughs> yeah and, and so. now it's based on um the headline segment of Rocky Night canada it seems we're willing to trade him to free to a good home essentially yeah i mean you know if we get a late pick back for him that's probably about all we can expect <laughs> our our goal of uh, owning the entire seventh round comes closer and closer to fruition we should have like a little tracker that we just bring up each podcast where it's like how many picks do the leafs have in the last two rounds of the next draft currently it's seven yep so <laughs> stay tuned for that but uh yeah anyway it's too bad i like nick patan i thought nick patan actually was playing pretty well but so nice yeah um, at the same time, Gauthier, I think, has earned probably the fourth-line center job. Also, there was a profile of him at The Athletic, and I try very hard not to fall for the human interest stuff, but God damn it, it was the most endearing profile I've ever read in my life. He seems like the nicest guy on the planet, and so I started to feel kind of bad about uh, how critical I've been of Freddie Goche, in addition to the fact that he also looks more like a real NHL player now than he ever has. So, yeah, I, I'm kind of okay with that. And then some combination of Spezza, Shore, and Timishoff can round out the winger group, um, which is fine. So, Godspeed, Nick Patan will always have the Spider-Man memes. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean... More generally, when you look at the Leafs' uh, forward usage, we'll talk about defense usage in a little bit. When you look at their forward usage to start the season, the other thing that jumps out is that the and uh, that the Kerfoot line, so uh, Kerfoot, Mikheyev, Moore, and then I guess for mm-hmm. a little bit Kerfoot, Mikheyev, Kapanen, um, has been taking a lot of the tough forward lines, right? In a way that Nazem Kadri last year didn't. Mm-hmm. So it, it's... And they've been generally, I think, quite good. We'll talk more. I'm, I'm just postponing everything that I'm, we're about to discuss. To, I'm saying we're going to discuss it later, but we will discuss Kerfoot in more detail later. Um, but I've, I've been impressed by him and what that line has done. So it's, I think Babcock has found a forward line system that has mostly worked thus far. I mean, the Leafs' shot results have been quite strong. Um, obviously, they weren't as strong against Boston last night, but against a strong team. And then without Taveras, you kind of expect that to some degree. And it was good that we got this one because the next time we face them is, I believe, Tuesday in Boston on the second night of a pack-to-back where we travel. So that's kind of a schedule loss already. 
Yeah, um, like that's going to be a really uphill battle. And you know, when we say we didn't get like the the greatest shot results last night, it was still pretty close to a saw off, and we had them in scoring chances. And uh, I, I am using scoring chances in lieu of expected goals because expected goals are still a little iffy right now. It's uh, been corrected on a going forward basis, but the oh, okay. results that we have, like for the first eight games, I don't think have been retroactively changed. Right. Okay. So we can use XG like for the Boston game, for example. But you know, for okay, the so first then I don't have an excuse not to use games. it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you blow up your spot right now. Uh, the ruthlessness. I'm back too excited as it turns out. Well, let's see if I'm still insanely wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, one moment. Expected goals. Da, 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 da. Yeah, but anyway, it, the fact that it's close to... Yeah, so they are. We got edged out there. But the fact that it is kind of that close, minus Tavares, I, I do think that that counts as an achievement. You know, I think that that was pretty solid to look at the numbers. I mean, now granted, by all accounts in the second period, the Leafs kind of got run, which is, I know, the thing that drives everyone crazy is that we have these stretches against Boston where we just kind of get walked out of the rink. <laughs> and it's weird because you'll also see these long stretches that I think get under-discussed where the Leafs look quite good, even better. Uh, you know, it's been it's become like a meme that, you know, the Leafs are unable to defeat Boston. And look, you know, we've lost them the last three playoff series. So that's kind of going to happen. But there were a couple of games in that series last year where the Leafs kind of owned them. You know, and they looked really, really good. And that probably ought to count for something in our analysis of this. Yeah, I mean, I think the way it always happens with any playoff series is that the result appears as if it was inevitable throughout the entire process, Mm -hmm. right? But then when you go through the series, like, on a game-by-game basis, and this is something that you and I both like to do, partially because we're bad people, but partially because (laughs) we can play it off as... we want to see what the other team thinks is that we I often look at other teams fan sites when the Leafs beat them mm-hmm. so in that series last year the Leafs went up 1-0 2-1 3-2 and then I don't know something weird happened and then they didn't play yeah, the other two probably games. nothing that we need to worry about exactly but after those games and this is not unique to Boston every team's fans do this but they're like oh man you know Cassidy's getting out coached we can't deal with the Leafs speed we're playing an outdated system, yada, yada, yada. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, people are worried, right? The, the Leafs legitimately do kind of strike fear into teams because it's hard to match up with them, right? Especially at at full strength. So, you know, I, I think we've been kind of pretty positive on the Leafs this year. I think I've been very encouraged by their shot results. It's hard not to be. They, they've simply, they've done very well, right? I, I think any... I worry that I'm like, I'm kind of... I don't want to go overboard here, but I'm like, looking at this team as a whole, the problem is goaltending. Over the first and, nine games, or eight games, yeah. And I mean, Anderson yeah. had a, bro- we, we haven't mentioned Anderson yet, he had a brilliant game yesterday. He was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's good to see. I mean, I don't think anyone was really worried about Anderson's first eight games. You know, he's about as consistent as non-star goalies get. Yeah. I mean, and depending on where you want to put the cutoff for star, right? Like, there aren't... I doubt there are 10 goalies in the NHL that I would take over Frederick Anderson. Probably much fewer than that, so... Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that... Well, the consistency is part of what makes him that, right? Like, like Robert exactly. Benner had a brilliant last year. Do I trust him to do it again? Eh, not really. No. 
And so <laughs> th- that's the thing. And so, you know, you have guys like John Gibson. Um, and yeah, then Gibson, you have... Gibson's the obvious choice above him, I think. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so, you know, that's re- reassuring. Um, Michael Hutchinson, I don't think has done anything to distinguish himself and so that is a bit of a concern the well, it's, it's also spot. been exacerbated because we've had two back-to-backs already and we have another one on tuesday so mm-hmm. i mean get 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 your wednesday get ready for some takes on wednesday about how the leafs need a better backup especially because um they'll be facing boston who has probably the best goalie tandem in the league yeah and you know behind an ironclad defense they look even better than they probably should yeah is the way I would put it. So, yeah, it's going to be a bit glaring for a bit there, and there's only so much you can do. Um, I, I'm reacting a little bit here because we've had some frankly insane uh, comments on the website that have given me a certain amount of pause um, with people saying stuff after losses, like, you know, like the loss of the Capitals or whatever, um, which was... That, like, the Leafs are doomed, and they're not even probably going to make the playoffs. And they're just very bad and very confused and all that sort of thing. And I'm like, if Frederick Anderson goes down, we are probably screwed. It'll get really ugly really quickly. But I actually have seen a ton of stuff about this team that is really encouraging in the early going. And, you know, you look at the shot differentials. You look at the ability of forwards to play up and down the lineup. I think we have really good forward depth. Like, I'm encouraged about our fourth line in a way that I probably haven't been all that much in the past. Uh, We'll get to talking about Tyson Berry, and he's imperfect, to say the least, but he's also pretty good, I think. Um, There's so much to like about this team, and I'm kind of, I I mean, I guess, you know, ultimately, it's a matter of wins and losses. People feel good after wins, bad after losses, that's natural, but I think that there are some really encouraging signs, except for Cody Ceci which is kind of weird because Cody CC actually has quite good shot results, which is just kind of blowing my mind. Yeah. Now, I mean, he's playing with Riley and with some good forwards. He's also playing really difficult competition. And the whole idea of the Cody CC experiment, I thought, was that we were going to pull him out of Ottawa. We were going to use him more gently. And we have upgraded his quality of teammates, which is, of course the biggest thing but I thought we were going to use him as kind of a four or five defenseman and we were going to lean a lot more on Barry Muzzin Riley and some combination and yet we're using him quite heavily along with Riley and I'm not sure that's such a good idea yeah it's except somehow CC has 53 percent adjusted shots so okay. yeah it, he's been unequivocally <laughs> on the Leafs top pair like you can't even really argue with it at least at, at five on five right so it's yeah. it's bizarre it's certainly not what I would have done it is working okay for now we're working well I mean let, let, I'll give them more credit than that if you told if you told me that he'd have a 53% Corsi and he'd be above water in expected goals and in goals, I'd be like, okay, yeah, sure. I'll bite your hand off at that. Um, yeah. Especially given the competition he's facing. Um, but it this is one thing where my eyes definitely disagree with the stats. because And this could just be because I'm prejudiced against CC because I've heard for so long how he's really awful. Mm-hmm. And I just look for evidence that he is really awful. He And to my eyes... He does not hesitate in providing even more evidence that he's awful. I know. Uh, it's 
I feel like this might be like the ultimate challenge for nerds is like, you know, you've been able to overcome your eye test and law situations, but the final challenge is we're going to give Cody CC good Corsi and you have to talk yourself into him. <laughs> because it's like, every time I watch him, I'm like, oh my God, his decision-making with the puck is just like, I want to break out in hives. He's just, ah, baffling. And yet at the same time, it's like, well, the results are okay. And so... Yeah, I guess I tentatively have to say that I'm okay with it. I'm super uncomfortable with the usage that he gets, but... Yeah, I mean, like yeah. he's he's a little bit under the team average, but Riley is as well. And that, that part of... I mean, look, obviously when you play guys elite competition, you want them to ideally outscore them and outchance mm -hmm. them and you know be even driving the bus the way, for example, the Bergeron line does in, in Boston, right? But... What's always kind of been the case for the Leafs, and this was true with um, Riley Hainsey last year, is that they were kind of a meat shield where they would survive. They'd be around 50% in shots and expected goals, maybe a little bit above or a bit below. Mm -hmm. And then the depth would kind of clean up. Right. Right? And, um, I mean, it, there's more than one way to skin a cat, right? You, you, you still end up with positive team shot and goal differentials if that's kind of your, your strategy. Um, but, you know, at the same time, it's, it's nine games of Corsi data. We, mm -hmm. we, that's something that gets forgotten is like Corsi itself is random. Yeah. Right. Like there's, there's randomness associated with, you know, what happens, you know, whether, whether maybe the NHL ate some shot locations, which, which happens from time to time. Maybe, you know, you set up a guy for a tap in, but he just whiffs the puck entirely. And that doesn't count as a shot or an expect or any expected goals when in reality, it's like a, almost a sure goal. Mm hmm. So these things kind of happen, and we have to keep an eye on that. But, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of in the same boat as you, where I feel very uneasy about it. But thus far, it's not been sinking the Leafs. And I, I do think this is more of a—I think their numbers have improved in recent games, because I remember Katya had an article on this, and, and Riley and CC in particular were not generating chances for at all. Mm-hmm. Right, and I think that's kind of been rectified to some extent in the last few games, um, where the Leafs' offense has looked like themselves. Yeah. So, um, you know, may maybe maybe it is just working better than I'd we'd like to admit it is, but I do want to wait more time before planting the flag and that. Hey, Cody Cece has been fine as the Leafs' number two defenseman. Uh, yeah, I mean, we know for a fact that <laughs> Emmanuel Perry is just waiting to jump on any Leafs fan who says that Cody Cece is good, so we better watch our backs. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, tentatively, I have to say it's been all right. Um, now, I mean, it, it's been similar to Hainsey, I guess. Yeah, maybe even a bit better. But. Yeah. Yeah. I'd have to look uh, up the numbers to be absolutely certain. I guess the Leafs are a better shots team so far this year than they were last year. So, you know, there's kind of a rising tide lifts all boats element mm -hmm. to this. But, That's true. Yeah. At the same time, you know, he's used so prominently in such a central role. You're yes. a bit like, well, if he's part of that rising tide, that's something. But yes, agreed. Also, Morgan Riley defensively has done nothing to convince me that he's ever going to improve at no. that end of the ice i'd like it's just it's not happening and that's how it is yeah so i'm just looking up the the rel tm stats which is until we have rapm and isolated threat data for this year which won't come for later in the year because they need a larger sample 
to work mm. otherwise they'll just kind of spew out ridiculous results that have huge kind of error bars mm. um, but yeah cc is basically exactly neutral relative to rel tm in expected goals per 60 and slightly negative in corsi okay uh, and then naturally riley's are essentially quite similar yeah so i mean it's not like you know he's beating the world or anything like that but he's also not a disaster right and then so the, like rel tm does not factor in competition and right. he is getting you know competition that would require some adjustment for not probably not like an obscene amount it's not like he would become you know um eric carlson or have eric <laughs> carlson like numbers if you put him on the third pair but you know it makes a difference a little bit at, at, at the margins yeah that seems fair there's another uh, defenseman who i haven't given a ton of credit to in the past although i was less dire about him than cc and i have to say from what little I saw of the game, because uh, at one point we were out at a bar and so I saw a bit of it on TV, and I happened to see Justin Hall make two really good defensive plays in a yeah, short that, span. Yeah, that was Justin Hall's best shift of his life. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, oh my god, is two, he a real two boy? Really, two really excellent uh, defensive plays off the rush, I believe. Yeah, and you know, he's using his reach because he is uh, quite a big guy, 6'3", <laughs> he's got a long stick, and so... Yeah, I, I mean, in general, I have to say Justin Hall has looked like a good third-pair defenseman. And, you know, I wasn't convinced that he was anything all that special. Again, it's still, you know, it's the third pairing. A lot of guys well, yeah, look I mean, on the third pairing. I don't think but... this shows he's anything quite that special. And I kind of feel the same way about Timoshov, where it's like, mm -hmm. they are doing fine in a fourth-line role. And I happen to think that almost, not almost anyone, but like... A lot of players, a lot of AHL players, can do well in that role. Mm -hmm. um, especially, like the, I think the talent gap between fourth liners is so small. And they play Often. so few minutes that you're not likely to notice it over a small time span. So it, it's like, I'm pleased with Hall. Um, but my my thing on Hall has always been that, like, I, it's not that I, I've never thought... It's not that, that we, or, but I think this applies to both of us, actually. It's not that we think he is, like, an awful player and he can never play in the NHL, and if he, if he tries, like, he's going to score 35 own goals or anything like that. Like, mm -hmm. it's more that I think the kind of gnashing of teeth that we were press-boxing him was overblown because it's like, okay, like, what do you want? What do you think Justin Hall is going to be? Do you think he's going to be a top-four guy? Because, one, I don't, and two, I don't think this stretch of him being a, a decent third-pair guy is really indicative of his ability to move further up into the lineup. Um, so it's just like, okay, cool. We're, we're, we're scratching a third pair defenseman or a seventh defenseman. That's fine. Teams do that. Yeah, that's right? kind of what happens if you're a seventh pair defenseman. So, I mean, credit to Hall defenseman. for, I'm sure it was not an easy experience for him. It, it must have been frustrating. Um, but So kudos to him for keeping his head down. And, you know, he, he has a situation where he's given an opportunity now, a bit more of a real opportunity. And he's doing what he can to run with it. Do I think it's going to save him when Travis Dermott comes back? Not really. I think it's an open question in a way that I didn't think it was before, mostly because he shoots right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I do think he... Yeah. I think, unironically, I think he, he has performed better than Marinson this year. Um, mm -hmm. Not that Marinson has been like particularly awful to my eye or anything, but I just noticed Hall doing more things. And I'm, I'm kind of not really reading the numbers here, although I think Halls are better than Marinson's because they are. it is a tiny sample. Mm -hmm. um, and they're in a kind of a very specialized role. But I do think 
that Babcock does just trust Marinson more, and also Marinson's ability on the PK helps him there. Hall does PK a bit, um, but Marinson has done it more and for longer and seems, to my eye, better at that. Um, but either way, I'm not going to be upset no matter which one of them is sent down once Dermott comes back, I think. Hall has done yeah. enough to stake a claim to that spot, so that's fine by me. Yeah, I think... Uh... I think it's an open question in a way that I wouldn't have said that it was previously, just because Justin Hall has been playing more on the penalty kill, uh, significantly more actually than he previously did. Mm-hmm. And so, if he can do the PK as much or more than Marinchin, then he's probably actually going to win the race based on he's been better at even strength and yeah. he shoots right. But we'll see. Um, yeah, so, so, you know, lots of positive things to take away in the early going here, despite the fact that the record is still pretty middling in the standings, which I think has made an impression on people. That and the blown lead against Montreal, you know, I, I just feel like that has made people feel maybe more negatively about this team than was justified. Mm-hmm. But All right, so before we yeah. wrap up on the usage... Um, do you think they're going to kind of continue this kind of Tavares, uh, or sorry, this Marner Niedander hybrid with Matthews until Tavares comes back, or do you think they'll settle back into a more kind of consistent uh, line pairing within games? My guess is the latter mostly because one, they're going to be on the road uh, yeah. some of the time, and it's going to be harder to match. And two, the Boston Bruins are, in addition to being our white whale, they're also. Um, as we were saying, a notably top-heavy team. And so there's a real incentive to kind of come up with complex types of usage that we might not otherwise do uh, against, you know, I don't know, the Columbus Blue Jackets or whoever. So my guess is that it'll be more back to normal. But that said, you know, Matthews Marner did work. Yeah. And maybe we'll see more of it. Yeah, and I, I mean, there's been some calls to kind of play them together for reasons I think both valid and because people think it would be fun, um, mm-hmm. which I guess is also a valid reason if you're a fan. Um, so I'm not like crazy about crazy on board with that. Not that I think it's a bad idea. It's just I don't really see what the edge is as opposed to um, Nylander Matthews and then Marner on his own line. I mean, presumably you're paying the guy 11 million because he can drive his own line, right? He doesn't yeah, need to be stable to an elite center to succeed. Um, but I'm, I I think I have enough faith in both Nylander and Marner that I think either of them with Kerfoot and Mikheyev would be a good enough line for the time being until Tavares gets back. Right. Yeah, I think so. You know, I'm kind of open to any way we want to do this because yeah. we have enough good players that work in enough combinations. So Yeah, and yeah. I mean, Marner had a really good game as well. I think that was maybe his best game of the year. Hmm. Yeah, that right, seems so. to be the consensus. I know uh, Ian Tullock at the Athletic was saying the same thing. Yeah, said he was, was the star. He was excellent. Really, really deserved. Um, you know the the points that he got. Right, there's been times this year where he's kind, he's gotten points and it's just kind of been like not empty points, but like kind of okay. You didn't really do a whole lot on that play, and but you got a point out of it anyways. Yeah, and like the the rest of the performance wasn't great, but here like he got I think two two assists, two primary assists, and. I'm happy he did, because those were well, well-earned well points. Yeah. Good on him. Earn your damn money, kid. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think we've, we've discussed Marner kind of in 
negative-ish tones for the last little bit because of the contract thing. Because, one, he's not worth his contract, and two, he had a slow start to this year, both by um, 5v5 scoring and just his overall level of play. He's turning it around. Mm-hmm. and You know, let's be clear, we both genuinely like Marner. Oh, yeah, he's a fantastic player, and, you know, ultimately I'm still happier having him than not having him, obviously. It would yes. be insane if I were, like, I'd want him to leave instead. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd rather have Marner than $10.9 million in cap space right now. Mm-hmm. Now, would I rather have some more cap space than still Marner? Yes, I would, but we've had that <laughs> argument 55 times. Exactly. So, yeah, um, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot that's, I think, positive to take away from this early going. Uh, we were going to talk about two players in particular, now that we have a bit of perspective on it, in Tyson Berry and Alexander Kerfoot. Yes. We're obviously the the prime movers in the Nazem Kadri trade. So, and, hey, the Nazem Kadri and Kadai Rosen trade. That's not disrespecting. <laughs> Never forget. So yeah, yeah, I mean, so we discussed Kerfoot a little bit before. Um, I I really I really like Kerfoot, and I said at the time that I was kind of more excited about Kerfoot than Barry. Or at least I thought mm. Kerfoot represented more long-term upside because essentially he became the least ticket to a player who could do, you know, 75% of what Kadri did for 65% of the price. Or, you know, I forget the actual numbers, but, but something to that effect. And mm-hmm. thus far, he has delivered. Um, he, he, I think, is a legitimately good defensive player, right? His, his numbers painted yeah. him as one heading into the season. And watching him, I am, like, kind of happy with what I see. He seems aware defensively, which is a trait that most leagues forwards do not have. He seems active. He has a quick first step. Mm-hmm. So that's quite useful, especially in the defensive zone. And it's also useful because he can win those short burst uh, chases to pucks to clear them out of the zone or to make a pass. Or we saw um, in the first period last night, um, I, I the, the the broadcast didn't show how this happened, but there was basically a loose puck in the offensive zone, and Barry or sorry, and Kerfoot was ahead of the defense, and he won a race to essentially get a breakaway. Right, right. Um, those are all very useful skills, and as a result, he's also quite good, I think, in transitioning the puck. Right, he um, likes to carry the puck. He makes good zone entries, pretty common and often. To my eye, I don't have the stats to back this up. He makes his own entry and then will retain possession afterwards. He doesn't just make his own entry and then dump it in afterwards. He, he'll make his own entry and then, like, a neat backhand pass to a free teammate. So, yeah, I've, I've been super on board with Kerfoot. The one thing he doesn't really provide, especially relative to Kadri, is that Kadri was a shot monster. And mm-hmm. by that, I mean he took a lot of shots himself, which is a good thing. He got to high-value areas of the ice, and he took a ton of shots. Kerfoot shoots when he has basically no choice. Yeah, he is a pass happy player, and and again, that's something we we noted before, like in our reaction to the trade, we said, you know, he really doesn't shoot much at all based on the numbers, and you know, watching him more, you can you can definitely see that. Yeah, he's actually, I've been very high on Kerfoot in the early going. I don't know if this is just that, like, I don't know, uh, some sort of like rose-colored glasses I've put on without knowing, but Kerfoot looks great to me. Yes. He, he does everything except shoot. Yeah. No, I I, I um, mean, I, you know, to toot our own horn a little bit, I think we were both kind of, to the extent that we were happy with the trade, it was in large part because we got Kerfoot. Exactly. And that has 
board that has proven to be quite a nice addition thus far. I, I'm really, really impressed by him. And he's he's not been given an easy role. No. He's he's being used in tough situations against tough competition. He's working now also, you know, we've had kind of the coming out of Ilya Mikhaev, who even if we think that he's on a heater right now, he's clearly shown that he can be a good third line player. Yes. And so it, it maybe it's a bit stronger on that third line than we thought, mm-hmm. but he he's delivered in his usage. He's done exactly what we would have hoped he would do. Yes. So. It, if you're a third line player taking on, you know, basically he is. I think if you look at hockey viz, he has a basically league average competition, um, mm-hmm. which is more than most third liners get, obviously by definition. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's taking that on and he's, you know, above water in, in shots and in, in threat and in expected goals and things like that. I think it's, you have to be happy with him, right? It, it, again, it's not like he's been given elite line mates. Mikheyev looks good, but, you know, we have nine games of data on, on, on Mikheyev. We don't really know how good he is yet. Um, mm-hmm. That entire line has been quite positive to me because they've also freed up the Matthews line to do what they've done. Right. And, you know, as much as I think we would like it if, um, frankly, Matthews at some point turned into a two-way monster, it may be approaching the point where we should stop hoping for that so much. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I think it's, you know, at some point you, you accept him for for what he is. And what he is is obviously a brilliant player. And I think, um, you know, again, this year Matthews has been the least best forward by some distance, in my opinion. And Nylander has been, I think, second best also by... Mm. A bit of distance so you know that if the Leafs are able to put them in situations where they can succeed and where they can do this then that's probably their best ticket to contending and part of that is having a third line that can punch above its weight a little bit and that's exactly what the Kerfoot group is doing right now yeah and what more can you ask really there is one other thing that I want to note is that Kerfoot is not being used and is not likely to be used on the first power play unit Whereas Nazem Kadri has always been kind of a power play monster. But we can assemble a very strong first power play unit with the players we have. So we don't really need him to replace Kadri's production per se. If you understand what I'm saying, in terms of like, if we can assemble a solid power play unit and we're getting even strength production from Kerfoot, that is in line with Kadri's. I think that that's even more of a win than maybe it seems like when you look at the the numbers yes but basically the, uh, the the power play brilliance of Kadri it was more easily replaced internally than mm-hmm. the ability to face good competition and come out ahead you know in terms of on ice results at even strength we didn't have anyone once you got rid of Kadri who could do that who wasn't Tavares or Marner or Matthews rather in terms of centers right um, or, or Nylander, but then you split up Nylander and Matthews, and, you know, we've had that discussion a million times as well. So, yeah, I, I agree with that. But, wait, you said something uh, weird they, there. What's a power play? <laughs> According to the ancient scriptures, a power play was a time in the olden days when, when an infraction was committed by the Boston Bruins, the refs would escort the player who perpetrated it to the penalty box. And for two minutes, the opposing team would have one more player on the ice. Oh, wow. That would be really cool. I know. Fucking Christ, man. I I hate whining about the refs, but also, it's always this shit with Boston. And you know what? When the differential is this lopsided, and I'm sorry, 
we're a cleaner team than the Bruins are. You know, if we have to hear over and over and over again about how tough the big bad Bruins are seven boys a Sunday, maybe we can also say, okay, but the Bruins should be in the box at least as often, if not more. You know, I just, I mean, I'm still kind of residually a little bit bitter about game two from last yeah, year's playoffs. Just a clown show. That Yeah, that was just a bullshit refereeing game. And it, it, it kind of exploded with Kadri losing his mind. And again, he should not have done that. That was very bad and stupid. But it was an awfully managed game. And when this shit happens again, you know, I, I hate it, <laughs> frankly. You know, yeah. I don't like complaining about well, the refs. And, you sound and like a sore honest, loser. Like, but... There should have been more penalties on both teams yesterday. Both teams were getting away with murder. Mm. It was it was ridiculous. I, one, I've complained about this so many times, but I despise how much interference happens in the NHL that is not called. It's so yeah. dumb, right? Like, you, you dump the puck in, and yes, you can play the body t- to an extent when the puck leaves the guy's stick, but if the puck is 15 feet behind you, it seems kind of ridiculous to, like, hold and obstruct the guy unless, like, you can kind of, you can block his path. That's one thing, but I feel like a lot of the Bruins just literally hold the guy. Like, you can't do that. That is interference. Zidane Chara is a Hall of Fame defenseman. He's one of the greatest defensemen of all time on merit. He is also a goddamn interference octopus, and he has gotten away with murder. I know I've complained about this before, but fuck it, I'm complaining again, because it makes me mad. The fact that they get away with all of this stuff is really frustrating, and you would love to see kind of an evenly called game here. Anyway, there's not much we can do. I did notice that Mike Babcock took an oblique shot at the refs, Mm -hmm. which is as much as he's going to do. Here, I'll get the quote just because it's kind of funny. Mike Babcock, this is being quoted by Mark Masters. We struggled in the second with penalty trouble. That really got us out of flow. How many penalties did we take? Looks down at the game sheet. One, two, three, four. How many power plays did we get? Anyway. And so... (laughs) I love that because, like, it's not a criticism in any way. Like, you can't even get fined for that, really. But it also is like... Hmm, what a fascinating thing it is that has happened. So, anyway. But <laughs> to get back to the good feelings, Alexander Kerfoot has been pretty much everything we wanted. I, this is kind of an aside, but the rumor was that, well, it's more than a rumor. It's been substantiated. We apparently had a trade in place with the Calgary Flames. And Nazem Kadri would have had to waive his no-trade clause for that, and he decided not to. And so... Even Smoke hates that trade. Yeah, Smoke absolutely loathes that trade. Sorry. (laughs) Anyway, yeah. My cat is fascinated when I'm doing the podcast, so he has to come in and see me, Mm -hmm. and then he has to run away again. But uh, that trade that we allegedly were going to do for TJ Brody and Center to be named, I can't imagine... That I would have been happy with that trade, unless the center was like, I don't know, Sean Monahan. Like, well, I mean, it, it was. It's weird to me because like, it wouldn't have been Monahan. It wouldn't have been uh, Backland, right? Because those guys are no core guys. So it, it probably would have been Derek Ryan, who no, or Mark um, Jankowski maybe. Which yeah, which hard no again, and, and so Jankowski has like shockingly good isolated threat. I I can't say I'm educated on the guy at all. I've I mean, I've watched Calgary games, but I've never really noticed Jankowski. Um, yeah. He's not the guy you're, you know, you're thinking of when maybe, you think of Calgary. But, 
but like I can't imagine I'd prefer him to Kerfoot at all. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that the um, deal is going to be a long-term win for the Leafs, I think it'll be because of Kerfoot. And we mentioned this at the time. Um, the reason for that is simply because I think Barry's going to command a lot of money next year, and I don't think the Leafs are going to be able to pay, nor do I think they should be willing to pay for Barry. Which is not to say that he's been bad, and I think now it's a good time to transition to talking about him. But mm-hmm. Barry has been... I mean, you can see... You can see the gifts and the flaws, right? He, he's a very polarizing player in that sense. Or he's a player who looks all-world in some caliber and then looks beer league in some calibers. Yeah. He, actually, I will say Tyson Berry looks exactly like everything I ever heard about him. Mm-hmm. Like, he is at times outstanding in terms of his skills. He can make plays that very few players can make. And at the same time, sometimes in his defensive zone, you'll be like, what are you doing, buddy? This is insane. Uh, you know, there's a some shades of Jake Gardner there. Um, we can debate as to who between the two of them are, is better. I think we're both kind of sympathetic to Gardner. Yeah. And Barry has a shot that he uses a lot. And listeners of this podcast will probably know... We're, we're a bit, you know, leery of defensemen that shoot a lot because still... If you're a defenseman and you're shooting a lot, you're probably farther from the net. And so it's probably a lower quality shot most of the time than your forwards could be getting. This analogy's been made before, and the Leafs, but um, it's like a mid-range shooter yeah. in the NBA. Um, mm-hmm. If you have a good mid-ranger, that's good, right? I, I'd rather someone be a good def- yeah. shooter than not a good shooter, but I don't want to build my offense out of mid-range jumpers. Right? Yeah. And I don't want to build exactly. my offense out and of defenseman shooting. Yeah, especially not in the power play, which is what the Montreal Canadiens do, for example. And you'll notice, like, the last five seasons uh, with Colorado, he had 13, 12, 13, 14, 14 goals each year, which for a defenseman is quite high. Uh, He's not on our first power play unit anymore, so his goals are going to go down. He has zero in the early going. And so we may be hurting his upcoming salary a little bit, although I think teams will still mostly understand what he can do right want it. he has such a long track record of you know point scoring from the blue line yeah and so as much as he's a very gifted player in that role he's a bit of a a different fit he's still a better right defenseman than we've had in probably 20 years mm-hmm. and so y- you kind of got to appreciate that on his own worth like we had to get one somewhere was the idea with the Kadri trade. And we are better for having him. So, I mean, I'm to some extent, I'm like, enjoy it while it lasts. It, it is hard for me not to think that as much as Jake Muzzin is 30 and not especially fast, even at the best of times, and he'll still cost a lot of money, I'm like, man, I kind of want to extend Jake Muzzin. Now, I don't know what the extension is going to look like, and it may be enough that it would scare me off. He's going to command a lot, but, like, I, I think we've said on the site before, it's, like, the ideal defense partner for, like, five of the least defensemen is just Jake Muzzin. Like, he's the guy who does the things that no one else does. And those things include defense. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. I was actually just about to say the same thing, where... You know, that pairing has been successful for the Leafs. They, they're um, about, they're qu- quite a bit above average, of the, above the team average in terms of shot share and, you know, 
uh, scoring chances and the expected goals again is, is wonky because as we said before the the first you know seven eight games data is a little untrustworthy but it'll be broadly correct uh it's certainly when it agrees with everything else i'm comfortable kind of saying yeah that that pairing has been good but to my eye and i think also when you look at the stats muzzin has always been the play driver between the two right you know going back to their time in la and their time in colorado muzzin's always been kind of a fancy stats darling and barry has always been Mm -hmm. one of those guys who has been divisive because you know you could have argued as we kind of discussed when we talked about this trade when it happened that he's a bit of an empty calories point scorer where he scored a lot of points but his Mm -hmm. team wasn't necessarily much better with him on the ice now i think that probably overstates it i I do think barry is a net positive to a team um in part because i do think he does have legitimate shooting talent especially for a defenseman and i think he does create offensive chances that are perhaps underrated by expected goals because of puck movement um, but yeah, of the two, I, I'm comfortable saying that I think Muzzin's the better player right now. And given the Leafs' needs, right? If we were a team that was screaming for a power play quarterback, maybe I would think differently. But given the Leafs' needs, I, I would rather have Muzzin going forward. And as you said, it's it's very unclear what Muzzin is going to cost and whether the, whether the Leafs can really afford that. But it's almost certain that the Leafs won't be able to afford what Barry costs because points get you paid. So, rules of the world. Yeah. So, so I've been happy with Barry, or I guess pleased with Barry. Um, but I, I am treating this as a one-year thing that is not going to continue past this sing- this season. Yeah, I, I think that that's probably the the best way to look at it. For what the it's other worth, thing about um, Muzzin. Sorry, I'm yeah. just going to interject here quickly. Uh, Muzzin. Yep leads the Leafs defense in like Routiem, Corsi, and expected goals right now. Barry is uh, second. And funnily enough, uh, CC is third. Of course he is. CC the whole rest of this year will be like, is he doing well? Maybe. Maybe not. And so it'll be an ongoing weird thing. But that's yeah. better than him being a disaster all the time. Oh, of course. Uh, the thing have. about Muzzin is that, yeah, is that like, if we don't resign him, we have to replace him. We have to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, all of our defensemen except Riley are expiring this year. Presumably, we are going to retain Travis Dermott at some salary value. But, you know, you still have to get some guys. And we will have some decisions to make. We can probably afford one medium expensive-ish defenseman. And not, like, I'm not saying extremely. Like, I think Alex Petrangelo is probably a pipe dream even if he does leave St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And so after that, it's sort of like, well, what else are we going to do? And yet at the same time, the Leafs have basically zero skaters over 30 on their roster, except Jason Spezza, who, who barely counts. And so it would be kind of a move away from, from youth, which is kind of defined them so far. Yeah. And I don't know. That'll be an ongoing thing to watch. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, you, I guess you can pencil in a couple spots, or at least the Leafs are hopefully penciling in Sandin, Sandin sorry, and Lilligren, right? Um, and then yeah. if you retain Dermot, you're already at three left defensemen. Mm-hmm. So maybe one of them can swap sides, but then, you know, you have to start looking at whether that is going to be kind of a limiting factor. 
And then conversely, when you look at the market for right-sided defensemen, it is, to use a technical term, that. So, <laughs> you know, it's it's a tough decision to yeah. make. Yeah, I I mean, all of this kind of adds up to when Travis Dermott gets back and the time comes, you have to be thinking we got to try this guy on the right side. You have to. You have like, to. We got to figure out what we have here. Um. And I will say, I think, I think the criticism of Babcock at this point has just gone insane. Like, I'm sorry, like he get, he now gets criticized for stuff that's understandable. Uh, Maple Leafs Hot Stove, who's uh, one of our fellow blogs, had a good article breaking down. You know, he didn't get Matthews out there in a six on five. Yeah, I think it was Alec and Brownscombe they, specifically. They did, yeah, and uh, he wrote quite a good piece, just laying out here was what was happening there. And basically it came down to he had six players on there for a reasonable justification, and then they held the puck for like a minute straight. And that's why he didn't get Matthews on, because he can't force someone to go on if his players aren't coming off. Um, you know, some of the criticism of Babcock there, and also everything he says about Nylander, and, you know, we adore Nylander. We go on about him half the episodes of this podcast, but, like, it's fine that he doesn't, punctuate every sentence with and by the way Nylander's a good player you know well he's an adult he'll be okay so I do think that it's really gone off the wall there in terms of anything he does he gets criticized for that said he's answerable for his management of the defense I think that's been his probably biggest weakness in the past and I think if we get to the end of this year and these pairings have basically been static, with Travis Dermott, again, being a really nice third-pair guy. And CC being, eh, survivable on the first pair. I'll find myself thinking we kind of blew an opportunity to figure out what we have and to see if we can do better than we're doing. And I will say that that's a mistake. So, that's something to keep an eye on. And, I, and I'm saying this because I'm afraid that is what's going to happen. Like, if I do have some appreciation for Babcock's biases such as they are, I do think that he does have a particular conception of what his defense pairs should look like. And I do get it, for the record, with Morgan Riley, the idea is to give him some kind of defensive-ish partner, because he could probably benefit from that, but I do really want to try Dermot uh, in some different roles there. I agree with everything you just said, um, and I think actually Babcock is answerable <laughs> for that for the past couple years, because for the last couple years, yeah. we've had the opportunity to experiment in February and March and April when we were almost essentially assured of a playoff spot and right. we did no experimentation at all. And I think that's a missed opportunity. Um, you know, Jonas Siegel had an article about trying Matthews with Marner. And as I said, I'm lukewarm on that idea for a variety of reasons. But one thing that he did mention, and that is true, is that uh, Nick Nurse, the Toronto Raptors coach, uh, experimented with uh, different starting lineups uh, last year. And that in basketball, a lot of coaches view the starting lineup as kind of immutable. Right, and Nurse said, mm -hmm. "Why should it be? Right, like you can, you should be able to change it around." And there was times, especially in the first half of the year, where he would start different centers. Right, um, now, when it got down to business time, he got, ended up finding his five and rolling with that and being consistent. And the Raptors had a very tight rotation. But the point is, when the stakes are low, you have some time to experiment. You have some time to try things. Use it. Right. So, mm -hmm. actually, just on the note of Nick Nurse, because this really stood out to me. Uh, I, I was reading uh, a quote from him from a scrum at The Athletic 
So there are two players who the, the Raptors signed in the offseason who are kind of fringe end-of-lineup guys who are supposedly known for their defense. And someone asked kind of a, a gimme question about, like, are these players contributing to the defensive focus of the team? And here's Nurse's response. Nope, nope, nope. Those guys have not understood how hard we play, our schemes, that defense is a priority for them, etc. We've got some work to do with all that crew. I tell them there are a couple of spots come Tuesday night. There are a couple of spots that are open if somebody wants them. Show me you're going to play defense. Show me you're going to play hard. And I just thought, like, <laughs> it was just a coincidence of timing. But, like, Mike Babcock had a quote about, like, oh, you know, Willie's doing better this year. You know, last year he was on a beach about this time. And I'm like, compared to this, like, that's a lullaby. You know, I do really think that people are so primed to read everything he says as being critical and negative and all this sort of stuff. And I think for the record, he has sometimes tried to give Willie a bit of a kick in the behind to get him going. But like, I don't think that it's fair to read everything he says in the worst possible light. And it really is just reflective of a frankly weird antipathy towards him at this point but yeah as we've been saying he owns this you know he owns this team and i do think that he is to some extent coaching for his job he's got to get a better ultimate result this year whether that's fair or not so mm -hmm. we're gonna see yeah okay i mean that that sounds good was there anything else you wanted to talk about or uh, should we wrap it up uh no i'm good all right sweet so uh, thank you all for listening. You can find all of mine and Fuleman's work on pensionplanpuppets.com. Fuleman actually just wrote a very nice article about how, uh, actually kind of about the discourse around the Leafs and the negativity that surrounds them and why, you know, you can fan how you want, but there comes a point where a lot of people are being a little bit ridiculous about the team. And, you know, it's about how you learn to stop worrying and love the Leafs. I think that's the title, right? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's, very, it's a heartwarming tale. Um for this, uh, for for these fall days, um, you can also catch all of uh, all. Uh, sorry, all of uh, our work as a whole. There, um, PPP has a ton of news analysis, Marley's games recaps, Leafs game recaps, previews, all that sorts of fun stuff. You can follow Fulman and myself on Twitter at RVNATFulman. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>